The Down in a Heap podcast from Rob C. is one of the only podcasts that I can stand to listen to. I'm Froth from the Thought Eater podcast, and I approve this message. In old school games, where life is cheap, bring a pole or rope, don't go down in a heap. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Down in a Heap podcast. I'm your host Rob, podcasting to you live from beautiful northeast Minneapolis. It is day seven or so. (laughs) It's Saturday in OSR October. I've made it through a week. Will I be able to make it through a month of podcasting every day? Tune in to find out. There at the top of the show, we heard from froth from the thought eater podcast thought eater blog and jason from nerds rpg variety cast doing his metal version of uh my theme song so thanks guys appreciate it as promised today and every saturday in osr october will be devoted to a call-in episode a call-in bonanza if you will devoted to the calls, uh, you know, reacting or commenting from the previous week's episodes. Although don't let that deter your, deter you. If you've come late to OSR October and are listening through, um, you know, a previous week's episodes or something, feel free to chime in with your comments and, uh, opinions on those things as well. Uh, but without further ado, Let's go to Spencer from Keep Off the Borderlands. He had a call that even came in before OS, before October. It was a call reacting to my, just my outline for um, OSR October and some thoughts I had on criticisms of the OSR in general. So take it away, free thrall, a.k.a. Spencer. Hey Rob, I really enjoyed listening to you set out your stall for OSR Tober. Is it OSR Tober or is it Octosr? Anyway, um, if you're looking for alliteration, how about Wednesday Wanderings for looking at those adventure modules? Um, I also really enjoyed your comparing the OSR to a musical genre makes so much sense to me because you can't control what bands uh, play in what styles or or who chooses to listen and enjoy um basically it is what it is and some people happen to be arseholes and there's not a lot you can do about that and do you want to spend your time talking about those problematic people or do you want to spend your time uh enjoying the stuff that you love Hey, thanks for the call, Spencer. I appreciate it. And I really appreciate your idea for what I could call my Wednesday shows. Wednesday Wanderings is great. And yeah, I, I always seem to make comps to music and and sports, baseballs, especially when I'm thinking about other things, because I guess you just, uh, at least I tend to compare things I'm passionate about um, and try and see commonalities between them. And I really, especially music being such a interpretive and a little bit nebulous kind of thing, um, I think that really relates to gaming. You can have, music is so much based on what you grew up with and, and, um, you know, what, what songs you were listening to in really formative points in your life or memorable points in your life. And you, you have music kind of tied in with that. Uh, so, I mean, my parents will hear me playing, uh, Black Sabbath or something. My dad would be like, turn off that racket because he loved <laughs> Glenn Miller and big band music and, and country Western and stuff. And, you know, and I like that as well. 
because I, I imagine because I grew up listening to it, hearing it, you know, coming from my dad's uh, radio and stuff. And but uh, <laughs> where am I going with all this? Gaming is is so similar to that. What you grew up with informs your style to some degree. And while you can discover other things, uh, I think what you've played the most, obviously, is what probably forms your foundational kind of ideas the most. And, uh, and like you say, it, there's no controlling who else is enjoying the same types of games that you are. It can be a bunch of great people. It can be a bunch of jerks, or like I see in my feeds, at least for the OSR, it's 95% great people and 5% jerks. And uh, to me, that's not a big problem. Like you say, enjoy the stuff you enjoy, follow the follow and promote the creators that uh, are inspiring you, and just pay no attention to the jerk behind the curtain. All right, let's move on. Talking about day one of OSR October with these calls. What is Rob's OSR, how I defined it, and some commentary and questions from some luminaries here. Hey, Rob, enjoyed your OSR October day one. A um, couple comments. Yeah, I, I personally wouldn't call Hackmaster OSR. Hackmaster is an interesting place in the history of D&D and role-playing games. I'm glad Jolly's got it out there. I think Hackmaster, the new edition of Hackmaster, is really interesting. But And, you know, the older Hackmaster, the, you know, the one that's more of a joke game, maybe falls more in the OSR area, right? But I, I don't remember. Was that a two-point? Was that based on 2E or was that based on 3E? I, I don't know. I never played that version of Hackmaster. I have played the new version, and it's um, pretty crunchy. It's not... Yeah, it's much more of a... I wouldn't consider it OSR. But as far as... I, I mean, it could be. If, if it's in somebody's OSR canon, that's cool. But it's not in Jason's. But some other comments, though, talking about this stuff, as I was listening, some thoughts I had... Um, you know, I came back in the hobby around 2006, and I started looking around. I checked out some 3.5 manuals that were in the local library. They actually had D&D, the three main books in the library, and was bounced off it. And then I started looking around. I was living in northern Virginia at the time, and I found some local groups that were playing AD&D First Edition and Beckme, and I joined those, and me and my son went because I, I got back in because I sent my son into it. And, you know, I wanted to play what, we, what I knew. And, and so we got back into it there. I also got into G+, and was on Google+. And, of course, I found the OSR through Google+, like so many people. Because the OSR, you know, started on the blogs and really lived on the blogs and lived on G+. And we shared everything and all that kind of stuff. The one thing I would say is that it didn't have to only be TSR, especially at the beginning. You know, you mentioned Dan Proctor and you mentioned Labyrinth Lord. And when we look at that... Actually, at the same time he released Labyrinth Lord, well, not the exact same time, but he released Labyrinth Lord in 2007. He also released Gore in 2007. Gore was effectively an open source version of BRP, of the system used in RuneQuest and Call of Cthulhu and all that by Chaosium. And so Gore didn't really catch on, so he didn't follow that and he put his efforts into Labyrinth Lord. But if Gore had caught on, you know, and, and interestingly enough, Gore doesn't have sanity rules in it. It's really more to do D&D stuff. Now they had modern stuff. I think they had sci-fi stuff in there too. I haven't looked at it for a long time. But Gore was more of a generic BRP game. But if you wanted a classless game, you know, you don't like classes, then Gore would have been the way to go. And if it had caught on, the OSR might have looked totally different. You know, because if it had caught on, then other things had caught on then we might have seen a lot of other things. I know one of the first games I played online was actually Tunnels and Trolls, which I don't know. Tunnels and Trolls falls in old school, um, the old school mentality to some degree, but it's not, it, it never went out of production, right? So Tunnels and Trolls is the same game it's always been. Yeah, the newer editions have added some stuff, but it's effectively the same game. So I don't know. 
you know, you don't need retroclones of <laughs> tunnels and trolls. But anyway, but, you know, if, if Gord caught on, we might have had something totally different. So initially, though, even the, the, the people involved on the ground floor were looking at other systems, too. But the TSR games are just what caught on. But overall, I thought that was a great introduction to the idea and the concepts and whatnot. And I look forward to hearing where you go from here. So take care and keep up the great work. And that, of course, was Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Thanks for the call, Jason, and letting us know how, you know, you at least got into the OSR and what it was like, what your experiences were like when you first got into it, your thoughts about Hackmaster and stuff, too. That is a game, I, I shouldn't even have really brought it up as a, an OSR game because, I like I like I said at the time, I'm not at all familiar with it. Um I just know that it was it played a role in I think the or it must have played a role in the thought processes of Chris Gonerman and Matt Finch and Stuart Marshall and stuff as they were looking into the possibility of of creating these retro clones utilizing the OGL because Hackmaster had already done it, from my understanding, had already made a game and because it was a parody that's how they were able to kind of stave off um, any kind of legal action by Wizards of the Coast. So the only Hackmaster product I have is Little Keep on the Borderlands, which is their homage to, obviously, B2, Keep on the Borderlands. Um, and this was, and I'm glad you brought up the name too, it's uh, Jolly Blackburn is the, the main person, I think, behind a lot of this. Uh, in, at Kenzer and Company, uh, it did the Knights of the Dinner Table comics, uh, but this was written in 2002, copyright 2002, and it says for the fourth edition of Hackmaster, and looking at like stat blocks and stuff like that, I have no idea what it was based upon. Hit points are obviously really inflated, um, because I think there's just i think you the possibility for doing a lot of damage exists in hackmaster but you could easily i mean i'd have no problem using this and you know when it says cobalt just use the cobalt stats from bx or orcs or whatever and the uh npcs this almost looks like it's using like uh first edition unearthed arcana type of stats because they do have a comeliness stat but they look just like um any other D&D game there's an armor class that looks like it's in I, I don't know there's alignment there's skills that look like they're um based on percentiles uh looking at the the ratings I mean they're going up to like 78 here and stuff um but it the shorthand is like Crazy Zedar, Trader, Trader, Human Male Fighter 2. So, I mean, just having that information, you could generate the abilities or spells or whatever uh, for a character just by using that shorthand. So, I don't, I mean, while it's not strictly an OSR game, at least, it seems to be, uh, at least this supplement seems to be pretty dang compatible on the fly with uh with bx if you just use what the notation and sub it which you could maybe say about almost any kind of DD type game but uh, so yeah i'll i'll retract or <laughs> again reiterate i don't know enough about hackmaster to say whether or not it's an osr game uh as far as the uh gore that uh brp kind of clone that you're talking about that dan proctor was working on that um yeah the it's the if is the big qualifier there when you're talking about if it had caught on it, it the osr could have looked a lot differently i i believe the reason it didn't take off and that all the other uh clones of DD did take off was because DD has always been at least in the U.S., the game, the role-playing game. And um, there's just something 
maybe about being first, but also I think there's something that resonates with, uh, with gamers, with this, uh, with this level-based idea that you're progressing and going up in levels rather than just increasing different skills. Even though the skill-based games, I think, more closely resemble how humans develop <laughs> in things rather than these plateaus that levels represent. There's something about the level and the archetype class structure of D&D that seems to just work with gamers. So I, I don't think there's any surprise that those are the games that took off and that's what the OSR has used as its foundation uh, rather than RuneQuest or any other skill-based game or, you know, like Traveler or something like that. So, yeah, fantasy's huge, D&D's huge, and that's what uh, seems to inspire lots and lots of people. Let's move on to another call, or calls, from, I think, I think it's the old bandit lord, Daniel from Bandit's Keep. Can it help fight the sorcerers? Hey Rob, Daniel from Bandit's Keep calling in uh, about your kind of what is OSR podcast uh, today. So yeah, it was funny as you, and I didn't, I didn't call in in the middle because I was in the middle of doing something, but you, you hit on a lot of things I was going to say. I think Osric, uh I mean, I don't know this. Maybe people that know more about the history. I think that's where the, the thing came from, right? Because Osric is basically um, O-S-R-I-C, right? <laughs> Although the R is not uh, correct. But I think as far as the play style being uh, a thing that want, people want to define OSR by, I believe that's also from Matt Finch, right? I think that's where that comes from. So we can basically blame Matt Finch for all of this. But <laughs> no, I, I, I think you're 100% right. I think if you're going to try to have a standard of what we're going to call OSR, if there was some kind of committee that could decide what is and what's not. I think compatible with TSR uh, era D&D is probably, that's as good a standard as any, if not the best standard, honestly. I think that's probably what I would go by too. I do think that a lot of the term has become more about indie games that have a Dungeons and Dragons feel versus the rule set. And I think that maybe that is... Not the best way to do it, like you say, because it's hard to know uh, what um, what will be what it is. If somebody says, "Oh, this game is OSR," and you pick it up and it's got you know no ability scores and no hit dice and no armor class, but you go in dungeons and you know you explore and it's uh, it's like D anD D except not like it at all with mechanics, <laughs> then yeah, I don't know that that would be um, it would be OSR to me, which means that my uh, my hack that I'm coming out with is not going to be OSR. And uh, I'm okay with that. Hey, thanks for the comments, Daniel. I appreciate it. And I appreciate uh, your and others' uh, episodes of OSR October as well so far. Jason's dropped a couple. Daniel's, I think, been doing like me every day. As has, I think, uh, Kevin from the Red Caps has dropped one just about every day. Pink Phantom has dropped a bunch. Uh, Taylor at Clerics Wear Ringmail has dropped four going over the the four Zen moments from Matt Finch's uh, uh, guide to old school gaming. And I think he put up a YouTube um, video combining all those as well. So it's one fell swoop if you want, or if you just enjoy YouTube more than podcasts. And uh, who am I forgetting? No. Jeff at Minions Amusings has done a couple. So... There you go. Go check them out. Yeah, I think um, even though th- there's this kind of idea that the OSR is so undefinable and stuff, I think um, at least the people that were among the first group that kind of coalesced around the idea of uh, reinvigorating the old games, rediscovering the old games, having this renaissance or whatever would have all recognized that they were talking primarily about TSR era D&D. And I think the the next wave of people that kind of heard about it, and I'd count myself in that group, also were looking at it primarily as 
compatible with TSR era D&D. And it's those people, I think, that were in that next wave that were primarily inspired by the OSR games that had come out and built upon those and went off in different directions utilizing concepts from other games or creating their own uh, indie game and stuff. And uh, yeah, and those are great games too. And just because I don't consider it like an OSR game doesn't mean I don't love Into the Odd. I think Into the Odd is great. Or um, Maze Rats is great. Or Cairn, which is basically like Into the Odd modified more for D&D or Best Left Buried or, you know, whatever. There's a l- lots and lots of games out there. Mothership. Um, so, yeah, it doesn't mean they're not cool games. And I know Daniel feels the same way. And and he's, yeah, m- working on Unchained, his, uh, his hack of Chainmail and stuff. And I think, I think that's really cool. Um, I can't wait to, to see it. And, uh, yeah. But yeah, and one thing I didn't bring up that Jason was talking about is that, you know, he kind of discovered uh, when he was talking about his finding out about the OSR and stuff was mainly through forums and blogs and stuff like that and G+. And yeah, and I came to it totally through uh, hearing about it from Keith and then podcasts because I've just never been much of a blog reader or forum reader. I have, you know, I, I look at them and stuff from time to time. But the podcast medium is what really I'm drawn to because it's stuff I can I can multitask with a podcast. I can't multitask when I'm reading a blog. So that's why I really, even though the blogs probably uh, go into things in more detail and is much a, a, a better format for pre- presenting things like here's my random table for magic swords or whatever or mishaps that could occur from overusing your whatever <laughs> uh, or you know carousing tables and all that stuff I mean blogs are a much better medium for for uh, sharing those ideas than a podcast is but it's you know i for every hour I've spent reading blogs, I've probably spent 50 hours listening to podcasts. And that's just, yeah, people have different ways of consuming and sharing information. But uh, I'll quit blabbing, otherwise this is going to be like a two-hour episode. So can the balloon juice and move on to Kevin from the Red Caps podcast. Let's see if he's finished ringing out that cap. It's about time you showed up. Rob. It's amazing how, without anybody communicating, how often there's these same themes that come out when people do podcasts, um, especially with the OSR October. Uh, we had you know uh, Taylor over at uh, Clerkware Ringmail and Pink Phantom released episodes that were almost the same. And then uh, you and I both released an episode that was about what is the OSR. And independently, we almost use the exact same example. Um, I use Keep on the Borderlands and said that for a game to be OSR, uh, it had to be able to run Keep on the Borderlands without do too much, you know, conversion or times prepping for it. Uh, so I thought it was very comical that uh, we we without any communication we hit on the same same definitions. Uh, when that never happens in any other part of the OSR, it feels like. But anyhow, great job on episode one. I can't see how. Sorry, I can't wait to see how this whole month goes. And uh, yeah, thank you for kicking this into gear. It's going to be fun. I can't wait. Take care. Hey, thanks, Kevin. I appreciate it. Yeah, like I was saying in the last segment, I I do think that there's some foundational stuff that resonates with at least the in my circles, my OSR circles, seems to resonate and be true and um, if if you had to pick a couple I think it would be that it's the uh, compatible with TSR era D&D and that it's um, that it's using a lot of the ideas put forth in Matt Finch's primer for old school gaming uh, Those are these are not absolutes but I think the majority of the people when you're talking of, of the people I'm in OSR circles with, <laughs> uh, I, I'm thinking 
80% of what people think about when they're thinking of OSR, when they hear that, that's it, those two things. Um, and while uh, I don't think everyone's in lockstep with that, much like uh, the rules of OSR or TSR era D&D, uh, very few people are in lockstep about exactly what to do, but 80% of any kind of clone based on D&D is interchangeable, and it's the 20% that is house-ruled or little tweaks on different things, and that, I guess, adds some spice to the OSR stew. So, yeah, thanks for calling, and, and Kevin has... Uh, if you if you haven't listened, be sure to go over to the Red Caps because not only is he doing his own reviews of things, but he's gotten some great guests. He had uh, Chris Gonerman, one of the founding fathers of the OSR movement, who is most famous for the basic fantasy role playing game, but also Iron Falcon, and he just dropped an interview with Greg Gillespie creator of Barrel Maze and other mega dungeons like uh, Forbidden Caverns of Arkaya and Highfell and Dwaro Del- Delve, is that is That's the only one I don't have, is the most recent one. But I haven't listened to that interview yet with Chris, or with uh, Greg Gillespie, but uh, I will shortly and look forward to some others that he's got planned. It sounds like he's got some more big knockers in the uh, OSR lined up in the on-deck circle, so it's a couple Canadians, Kevin and, and uh, Greg Gillespie, chewing the fat over a dish of haggis or something, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> All right, and now we'll move on to, uh, another. speaking of luminaries, wow, I've got a call from a great creator in the OSAR circle, take it away, Goblin's Henchman. Hi Rob, Goblin Senchman here. Just a quick message to say I'm listening to the uh, OSR um, October, whatever we're calling it. Um, sometimes it's nice to know you're not toiling in this salt mine um, without anyone noticing. <laughs> um, I suppose I suppose if I do have a question, it's not a not a pressing one. But are you talking about the OSR? I'm not. I don't. I don't think you you addressed this point. I was uh, I was doing something at the same time. Apologies, but I was sort of uh, listening along, and um, I wasn't sure whether you addressed whether old school games are part of the OSR. Um, probably reading between the lines of what you said, I'm guessing you you think that old school games aren't part of the OSR. Uh, they inspire the OSR, but maybe I'm wrong. What do you think? Is A D and D the OSR, or is it just old school without the R? Anyway, okay, cheers, fellow, bye. Hey, thanks for the call, Goblin's Henchman. I appreciate it. And this is a kind of a sticky wicket. Um, when I first did uh, a podcast, uh, Is the OSR Meaningless Only If You Make It So, I think was the, the title of that podcast. I did kind of draw a line in the sand and said, and said that I don't really consider the original games, OSR games, like, so OD&D or Holmes or BX, Beckme, AD&D, I didn't really consider them to be OSR uh, because if if you just kept on playing the old versions of the game, you never really, <laughs> there was no renaissance or rediscovery. Uh, I don't know, that's that's a pretty fine line. I, I mean, I still use my BX... Uh, booklets much more as a reference than I do like the OSE books uh, because I'm used to them. Uh, I mean, any person coming to the game now I think would would say that the OSE setup is a more easy-to-use format if for no other reason than it's not... it's all combined together. It's not... Oh, you can, there's the basic, some monsters are in the basic book, some are in the expert book. Some magic items are in the basic book, some are in the expert book. Uh, Levels one through three, all the stuff there that you need is in the basic book. If you go beyond level three, 
it's in the expert book. Oh, and the and they changed the saving throw progression for the for halflings and dwarves. So look at the expert book for that. It's it's a lot of mishmash, but I'm so used to using them that I know where everything is. But yeah, if someone came uh, came new to it, um, I think OSE is a better better reference for <laughs> any new player. Uh, but yeah, I I think it's if you're playing uh, OD and D, if you're playing first edition AD and D, if you're playing Beckme, yeah, I think you're in large part uh, still <laughs> anything you create and stuff is uh, is OSR. Now, old school is a different thing to me because I think. If you're playing RuneQuest 2, you're playing an old-school game. If you're playing uh, Traveler, uh, the original Traveler and stuff, you're playing an old-school game. If you're playing Gamma World, if you're playing Top Secret, Boot Hill, Tunnels and Trolls, those are all old-school games to me. But because they're not uh, very readily transferable to, to a... TSR era games, I don't really consider them to be part of the OSR. They're just old school games. And likewise, I think you can have, like I was talking about, you can have games that are influenced and have a definite old school feel to them, have old school sensibilities, but if they're not directly compatible, I don't really consider them to be part of my OSR concept. Which is all to say... You can have whatever concept you want, right? This is just my opinion on on things. But when I'm talking about OSR games, I'm talking about either the original games or the anything that's directly compatible with the original TSR era games. So, yeah. Um, I think it's probably too fine a line, and I was probably make, trying to make too fine a distinction before... Uh, in trying to like separate those things, but yeah, I, I know there's people out there that are that think, well, why would I bother buying swords and wizardry when I have the little brown books and the supplements? I'm playing with that, or why would I bother getting OSE because I have BX or Labyrinth Lord because I have BX? So, and there's that's a perfectly reasonable um, line of thinking. So. Hope that answers your question. And now we'll move back to... Uh, I think Jason's back on the line. Hey Rob, Daniel from Bandits Keep calling in. Um, listening to things out of order and all over the place as usual. Uh, listening to your Black Marsh episode. You know, I don't... I can't confirm it was one of the earlier things. Well... I'll say it was definitely one of the earlier things that I bought. I think off Lulu originally. I could be mistaken there because I did have a a hard copy. And I thought that was before uh, Drive Through did print, but I don't. <laughs> Who knows, right? It all gets mixed together on my shelf. But yeah, it's one of the earlier things I got in the OSR type movement, and I really liked it. I actually didn't realize until you were explaining it that it was a throwback to the Greyhawk folder because I never had that stuff. But yes, I've seen the Greyhawk thing and. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I remember getting it and being incredibly inspired. And I think actually it may have been where I first found Delving Deeper too was through Black Marsh. So while I never really ran in Black Marsh, it was definitely a source of inspiration for me. So totally worth it for anybody to pick up in in print form for sure. I was wrong. It was Daniel that's up next. I'm trying to play the the calls I have in order of you know like what episodes they were referring to. So. But yeah, I think Black Marsh is definitely worth the very small price of admission. In fact, free for a PDF, but I'd, I'd get the booklet because I think it's really well done. But the what what Rob Connolly meant to do, he's, here's a quote, It is not meant to define the limits of the delving deeper world, but rather show its possibilities to referees uh, in a way of organizing their own campaigns and finally as a source of inspiration. And a big check mark next to that. Yes, it's a great source of inspiration. It's a great uh, snapshot into how to set up a, a region of a game world for you know a, a 
hex crawl sandbox kind of thing. Um, I think it's a excellent, excellent supplement. Agreed. Hey Rob, Jason here. Just want to say enjoyed your Ocular Goblin episode. Sounds like a great little creature to add to any game world. Very cool. Thank you for sharing it. Look forward to what you do next. Hey Rob, Jason here. So the D30 thing, I've heard that before, and it's an interesting idea. I actually have no issue with it. I personally wouldn't limit to once a level. So that'd be what, maybe once every four games. Um, if we're leveling up by the recommendations in BX, they recommend you level up every four sessions. So once every four games, you get to use a D30. That seems kind of punitive. Um, but another option that kind of fits in here is the luck dice, as done by DM Scotty. If you're not familiar with that, when the 7 October episode of Cerebrivore, we discuss luck dice. So check out that 7 October episode of Cerebrivore. Uh, DM Scotty also has a, you can buy his little luck dice pamphlet. It's 99 cents if you're interested in it. Um, it's not on drive through though. You have to go to a weird Australian site. I, I assume it's Australian. And then you can only download it five times total. And you have to download this five within a month or you lose it. It's, I mean, it's only 99 cents. So, but still, it's kind of frustrating in the modern world where drive through RPG keeps your things forever, even if the publisher goes out of business. <laughs> but I guess that's why they're, the quote-unquote monopoly, or at least the big boys in the block. But, yeah, I, I don't have an issue with these kind of mechanics. And the advantage of this, or even the luck dice, are un, they're not re-rolls. You know, they let you add extra effort to something that you're doing, which is kind of cool, that heroic push, but without the rewriting of fiction that re-rolls do. So I, I think the extra push, you know, be able to roll whether it's an extra D6 to add to your roll or roll D30 instead of your regular die, I, I think that's maybe a little more palatable to folks as opposed to the rewriting of the fiction of re-rolls, at least in some groups. But take care. Another great show. I will talk to you later. Well, thanks for the call, Jason. I appreciate it, as always. Punitive, you say. Punitive. I don't know. If giving the players a D30 to roll for something else is punitive. Isn't that a boon? But once a level, yeah, that might be too seldom. I, I think there's probably, there must be some kind of middle ground that that uh, would be palatable to me. Uh, because once a level is pretty rare, although I do kind of like how you'd, your, your luck or whatever is kind of running out because you're as as you go up in level, typically advancement starts to slow down a little bit. Uh, so that kind of would mirror that type of thing. Once per session, I think, feels like it's too often. And again, a lot, a lot of it depends on your actual group, how often you're playing, how long you're playing, how many people are at the table. I mean, if you've got six to eight people and they can all substitute a, you know, a D30 roll... It's, that just seems like a lot. And, but I agree that the, uh, the whole re-roll thing is kind of a, uh, I don't know. It's something I've done in, a, I'm most familiar with it in the, like a Savage World standpoint and stuff. And in that, the Benny economy just seems crazy. And again, it might've been the fact that I was playing Savage Worlds with a table with six, seven, sometimes I think eight other, uh, eight players and with all of us having a stack of bennies and the referee having a stack of bennies. It just seemed like Benny, 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 Benny. And it got really old really fast for me. Uh, Cause it, it, it seemed like the amount of rolls that were made that weren't pushed or re-rolled with some kind of Benny were <laughs> kind of rare. Uh, but uh, how about this? What if you could, you, you start out with one D30 that you can use. And from that point on, you only get another one each level. Or if you spend some experience points. I don't know how many that would be. 500? 100 per level? I don't know. But maybe 
in lieu of getting experience points or spending banked experience points, you could uh, gain a D30. Hmm. I'd have to noodle about that and noodle about the numbers. And I don't know if you'd want to set a cap on how many you could use per session and boiling it all down, it might be better to just say one per session for each person at the table. <laughs> but Daniel is uh, waiting in the wings because he has used this rule and might have some wisdom to share. Hey Rob, Daniel from Minutes Keep calling in about the D30 uh, once per session rule. I actually used that in my 5e, long-running 5e campaign. So I guess, I mean, 5e is a little bit of a different scale than an OSR game, but I had a big group. <laughs> All the things you said, we played two, two and a half hours. We had a group of seven or eight people. What I found was at least half the people didn't use it half the time because it just didn't come up. They didn't think of it. And it was used almost always for healing. Every once in a while for a damage roll, almost never for a two-hit roll. And I think once in a while for a save. And actually, like you mentioned, one time somebody used it for a save because they really needed to make it, and they rolled like a three. So, <laughs> exactly. It's not a guarantee, but it, it definitely helps. Obviously, if the base roll you're making is like a D4, then it's almost always going to be better. But it, when you're rolling it instead of a D20, it's not necessarily that big of a bump. Hey, thanks for sharing your experiences using that kind of rule, Daniel. And you're right, uh, 5e does have a little different scales when... When you're talking about things with difficulty classes, I think that get up to like 25 or something. Having a D30 can enable you to reach those even without a lot of bonuses. Uh, and yeah, the the damage or the, the replacement, um, yeah, if you're replacing a D30 for a D4 or a D6 or something, that can have much <laughs> bigger ramifications than, as you know, uh, a D30 or uh, subbing it for a D20. Um, I guess if, if I, if I saw people using it for the same stuff, most of the time, like you, you mentioned healing roles and stuff, I think I'd maybe get pretty tired of it and just say, ah, oh, this is becoming a one note Sally. Should, do we really want this, anything, this, in, uh, this in the game anymore? If that's what all people are using it for, oh, I cast cure light wounds on the injured warrior and I'm going to sub a D30 for the role instead of a D6 or whatever. Or I'm a magic user, and I'm always going to use the D30 roll for my magic missile spell. Um, yeah, if they start becoming one-note answers, then maybe it would it would start to get stale. But um, yeah, it's it's a, a a very interesting idea for a house rule, and um, and I could totally see people leaving that on the table as well, forgetting about it. Like I, I've said, when we were doing luck rolls in uh, Whisper Tales of Gore, people would often forget to use uh, those rolls and stuff. And even <laughs> even when they died or something, you'd be like, uh, don't you want to do that? Or uh, Same thing with, uh, with Sundering Shields. People forget about that sometimes, too. But, uh, yeah. All right, now the big finish. Jason has a few more calls to wrap up the show. Hey Rob, Jason here. The slumbering Ursine Dunes, I can't even say it. <laughs> it is a pretty great setting. I have it. I have not run it or played in it. But I I, I will admit I peeked at it. Um, and it's pretty neat, pretty fun. Um, talk about Slavic games. I, I've got one that I'm getting into now. A lost RPG, if you will. Um, I, I really shouldn't talk about this because I don't have it in my hot hands yet. I've ordered a copy, a used copy, for way too much money. And unfortunately, like I say, hopefully they send me the right thing because this is now something I have to have. Here's a quote from a poster from back in the day. This is a, a pretty hard-to-find Australian RPG called Russ. It's set in um, heathen Russia. But here's the quote from the poster. It's minus 15 below zero. No food and no water. The wound in my left arm is festering. This helmet won't sit straight since my left ear dropped off. Frostbite, I think. The guy with the pointy ears eats like a pig. Kukufkin keeps talking to the fire. Things are getting heavy. Killed the werewolf. 
Gregorian wants the skin. Don't know why. The hut with chicken legs is following us. More vodka? <laughs> I, so every review I found of this game says it's pretty horrible, but I, I've already spent $50 on the game and the one module I think that they ever printed for it. <laughs> or no, I'm sorry, I spent $50 on each of those. I've got like 100 bucks in this game. I've never seen that all the reviews are bad based on loving that quote from the poster. So I don't know. I'll let you know how it turns out. The Slumbering Dunes is probably a much better way to get into Slavic role-playing. As reportedly is the Mythic Russia for Hero Quest, but that's a whole different, which is now called, I don't know, whatever, something else, since um, they sold sold the name Hero Quest back to Milton Bradley or Hasbro, whoever does the board game. But anyway, yeah, there's probably better ways to get into Slavic gaming, but um, pre preferably written by actual Slavs. <laughs> but yeah, I couldn't resist. Anyway, th this digression is to say, great choice on slumbering Ursine Dunes. I, I think it is a neat product and one people should check out. It kind of sounds like you're describing an ice fishing expedition in January to northern Minnesota, fueled by vodka and maybe dropping acid or something. <laughs> I vaguely remember seeing that game Roos at uh, The Source. And when I when I got this message and uh, did a little searching online, yeah, I, the image that came up of the black book with the red Rus lettering, um, I remember seeing that and paging through it at the source. And I I didn't buy it. I was kind of interested because the the topic was kind of interesting. Um, there was another book that came out that was set kind of in the Baltic Crusades, so like the Teutonic Knights and their, um, and their, uh, they made it more of a fantasy type setting, and I think it was set up for like a BRP kind of game. I can't remember what it was called. Oh, anyway. Um, yeah, Slumbering Ursine Dunes I think is cool, and if some, in addition to the, what Jason's brought up here, some other kind of, Slavic kind of things I've seen. Uh, Trollord Games has this Codex series, and there's a Codex Slavorum, uh, which is uh, applying the Castles and Crusades system for uh, mythic Slavic kind of uh, gaming and stuff, and they also have one for Norse and Greek and Roman and Germanic and Egyptian, and I think they're uh, kickstarting one for, I think it's Chinese uh, mythos and stuff. So yeah, check those out. There was also a Dragon magazine issue that came out during, I think, the third edition years uh, where the the main subject was called Red Sails and it was uh, describing like Russian uh, myths and stuff for uh, like a mythic 3e D&D game and that was pretty cool it had a little little setting along like the Dnieper River I, if I'm remembering right it had monsters it had deities it had a little scenario so that's also kind of uh, a good source for ideas and stuff I think so I, I don't remember the dragon issue it was but it was I believe the the title of the like setting or whatever was called red sails all right and one last message from jason hey rob great episode as far as the idea that it's the party not the players another great example of that is when you look at the experience point progression in the game it's really obvious that it's meant for people to be able to quickly catch up because generally if say you have a group of fourth level party member, somebody dies, the next, you know, they can restart at first level. And the way the experience points work, by the time that fourth level party gets fifth level, that new character is probably going to be up to fourth level. So it, it's really designed for, you know, with that in mind, the idea of adding first level characters to the party as needed if somebody dies. And, and they've got all that figured out in there. So take care of yourself. I look forward to the next one. It sounds like Jason's uh, heating up a hot pocket or something there. <laughs> yeah, that I I agree. That's uh, 
kind of how it works. I mean, you can get on the, the, the death conveyor belt, which can be a little frustrating depending on how high the rest of the party is. Um, you know, if, if you're the only character that died and you died at third level or something and the other characters were at fourth or approaching fourth or something, um, it can be a little bit more of a rough ride starting over with a first level character in, in that midst. So you might have another one die or something, but yeah, you'll, you'll generally just be like a level behind unless you're running an elf or something in BX, which has a slower progression or a multi-class character in AD and D or whatever. Um, and likewise, if you if you play a character class that has a, a rapid advancement table, like a thief, I know you love thieves, Jason, you can catch up even more quickly, um, or cleric. Uh, so yeah, those are all good points and yeah, rolling up a character is a snap. It's, um, and if you have the kind of a will kind of system where you bequeath your possessions to your, to your next character, um, you know, starting out as a first level fighter, if you've got the suit of plate mail that your dead fighter had and a magic shield or a magic sword or a potion or two or something, maybe a magic ring, whatever. If you've got a magic item and a suit of plate mail, you're already uh, head and shoulders above your average starting first level fighter in my games. So, yeah. All right. So that's it. Thanks for the calls from everyone. Uh, thanks for listen, continuing to listen to OSR October. I hope it's not becoming too much of a burden to try and keep up. I know that uh, is one of the things I found with... Uh, um, RPG a day. And I totally get that. And I certainly don't expect anyone to be listening every day, but hopefully given enough time, um, you'll at least listen to the episodes that are, are interesting or that fit into your schedule. And believe me, after doing this every day in October or nearly every day in October, I'll probably be ready for hibernation in November. <laughs> so so uh, you have that to look forward to. All right. Thanks for listening. And until I talk to you again, don't go down in a heap.